On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Today on Basic, from Making the Cut and Project Runway, Tim Gunn. People say, oh, I never want to be the best dressed person in the room. Why? I do. I never dreamed we'd have a season two. The show was almost pulled before it ran. Project Runway was originally owned by Miramax, which became the Weinstein Company. Weinstein and NBC had a bit of a difficult relationship. Harvey was intent upon giving NBC Universal Bravo the finger. As seminal as I believe Runway was, it stayed the same. I'm in the presence of Heidi Klum. We saw this as an opportunity to move forward with our own vision. And we really are fashion's oddest couple. But when you look at us, we're a pretty odd couple. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic. I'm Doug Herzog. And in honor of our guest, I'm not wearing sweatpants today. I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And with respect to our guest, I'm still wearing sweatpants today. Basic is the official podcast of the unofficial history of basic cable television. From MTV to Mad Men, Jen and I explore the shows, networks, personalities, and milestone moments that define TV in the cable era. Our guest today is Tim Gunn from Project Runway and Making the Cut. So Tim's best known for helping the wannabe designers make it work on Project Runway. And it's a show that made the art of fashion accessible to millions of viewers. So let's make it work now and welcome Tim Gunn. First of all, welcome, Tim, to BASIC. We're so happy to be here with us today. And Doug and, and Jen, I'm thrilled and actually quite honored to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, we appreciate that. Now, look, unlike most of the people who appear on this podcast, I'm guessing you did not originally aspire to host a television show or were necessarily obsessed with it um, as a kid. Um, uh, but I'm wondering, do you remember when you got cable and what you thought about it? Well, I got cable when I couldn't get any other, other decent reception. Um, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, it was right after September 11th when the, the, the largest antenna in New York City fell to the ground and suddenly no one had reception and I subscribed to cable and um, fell in love with it and then totally dependent upon it now, of course, as, as we all are. Um, yeah, I mean, it's part of my life. But, but needless to say, it wasn't a big part of your life before that. Oh, you, you're talking about my television life? Sure. Your, oh. your, pre, your, your, your pre-television life. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, I mean, the, no, it wasn't, it, it was not that critically important to me. And um, I have lots of hobbies and interests and um, live in New York City, which is a feast of sorts. Um, so I feel very, very lucky, very fortunate. So I have to ask you, Tim, uh, I believe you grew up in Washington, D.C. I did, Jen. Yes, and I I am from the D.C. area and still live in the D.C. area, actually. Oh, you do? Right. Yeah. Um, and so I was just curious, as, as a young person growing up in this area, like, when did you know you were interested in fashion? Like, how did that oh, get sparked in you? This happened at, at the very end of my career, well, close to the end of my career at Parsons. I mean, I, I will say... Growing up in Washington, D.C., it's hardly a fashion capital. Um, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I don't understand it. When we had Mrs. Obama and we, we still have Speaker Pelosi, why don't people take a cue from these two 
women who dress so fabulously and present themselves with such grace and style. I don't understand it. I have to tell you a funny story though. For five or six years, I worked with the Council of Fashion Designers of America um, on Capitol Hill advocating for the Design Piracy Prohibition Act because fashion designers in America, we're the, we're, we're the only industrialized nation where fashion designers don't own their intellectual property. So I was really um, all gung-ho and, and, and enthusiastic about this. And I would have people flee from me, from me at the Capitol um, saying, I didn't know you were coming. If I'd known, I would have dressed in a more appropriate way. And I, and I said to them, you are elected by your constituents. You were ambassadors from, from your, your areas. Why don't you feel this pressure every single solitary day? Well, uh, two things. One is, I think that people in Washington work so hard that they just don't have the energy maybe to put into it. Maybe not people at like a congressional level. But, and then a second thing, which is I worked on Capitol Hill for a little while and I had to dress up more for that job than anything else I've ever done. I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> I, you had to be wearing like something put together. There was like a dress code. And now there, as you know, dress codes like just don't exist anymore. Oh no, I mean, it's in fact, it's considered politically incorrect. And I have to say, you may know this about me. I formally and firmly subscribe to the semiotics of clothes. The clothes we wear send a message about how the world perceives us. And we need to accept responsibility for that. Yeah. No, I was going to say, what, what, what do you think about the future of dressing up or, um, I mean, you, you know, for instance, in show business, you know, agents traditionally always wore suits. Yes. What I, while I haven't been to an agency in two years, I'm pretty certain that's starting to fall away. It is. And so what, 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 what do you think? And I argue with my wife all the time about how dressed up we have to be. And I always feel like going forward, it's going to be less. I'm just curious how a fashion expert like yourself use that. Well, I, I agree with you that, that people will not be dressing up as much. I hope that the awards red carpets are still very dressy and, and black tie specifically. Um, but I have to say, when I see someone who's dressed up, I actually reach out to them and say, congratulations, whether it's a, a woman or a man. Um, and I, I hear universally from these individuals that dressing up makes them feel better able to conquer the world and it gives them much more self-confidence. So I, I feel the same way when I dress up. It's, it's a good feeling. And I, people say, oh, I never want to be the best dressed person in the room. Why? I do. <laughs> um, and that it, you can put everyone else to shame. Mrs. Herzog definitely feels that way as well. <laughs> I, I think part of it too, though, and, and I know that you've, you've spoken a lot about this in the past, that... Um, and I can only speak as a woman here, but I, I feel like a lot of women, they go shopping, they don't find things that fit them properly, and they and then they just get fairly dejected and sad, and then they just don't want to try because they're having a hard time finding something that suits their bodies. No, I, I run up, I, I run into this all the time, I have to say, and I love going shopping with women because I'm the blunt instrument who says, try it on. And you're saying, telling me it's too small? No, this is the size you should be wearing. Most people, whether they're male or female, are wearing clothes that are at least one and usually two and sometimes three sizes too big. And it's the comfort trap. Well, I don't want to feel constrained by my clothes. Well, if you want to feel as, as though you're navigating the world in pajamas, then don't even bother getting out of bed. <laughs> I need to take you shopping with me. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> and you look so stylish. We'd have a blast. Oh, thanks.
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? 
Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Tim, what, uh, so how did you end up in academia and how did, you know, and how did you end up in the classroom originally? Well, I never dreamed that I would, Doug. Um, I had uh, graduated with a degree in sculpture and, and I spent years as a kid wanting to be an architect and actually studied architecture for, for a semester and thought this is the closest route to a mental breakdown I think I've ever experienced. I mean, in the olden days before, before CAD, when you had to drop India ink into a stylus and pull it along a straight edge and it could take you 40 to 60 hours to do a presentation drawing for a class. And if the ink were to bleed, you'd have to start all over again, drove me nuts. So the irony of that is that I supported myself after I had the sculpture degree by building architectural models for three firms in Washington. Um, and I loved doing it, and it was, wasn't that lucrative, but also I wasn't expensive. <laughs> and a former teacher of mine who's, who had remained a mentor reached out to me and said, I'm teaching a summer program for high school students, and I really need a teaching assistant, and I'd like you to be that assistant. Well, I wasn't going to say no to her. I, I loved and adored her. And that's how I, that was my introduction to the classroom. And I, I loved it. It was six weeks, but I was not prepared for what was about to happen, which was a, a call from this, the, the, the mentors, a woman by the name of Rona Slade. She called me in late August and she said, I just had a faculty member back out. She was the head of the fine arts department at the school. And I need someone to teach three-dimensional design and I want it to be you. And again, I wouldn't say no to her. I said, well, I'm thrilled, I'd love to. But <laughs> I wasn't prepared for the most colossal stage fright I've ever experienced. I drove into the school's parking lot and promptly threw up all over the place. Oh, wow. And I staggered to my classroom and I had to brace myself up against one of the walls because my knees were shaking so badly, I would just tumble over. So this went on for a week. And Thursday night before my Friday class, the last class of the week, I had rehearsed this delivery that I needed to make to Rona about how I can't go on like this. This is going to ruin me. And I delivered it and she listened and she looked at me and she said, I trust that this will either kill you or cure you. And I'm counting on the latter. Good day. And I thought, <laughs> oh no, I've got to go back and do this all over again. But it, it did cure me eventually. I mean, who knew I'd, I would spend God, 29 years in a classroom and, and absolutely loving it. And the other irony of it is that I really and truly hated school. I love learning. I'm still a bookworm, as you can tell. Um, but I hated the social aspect. And in terms of, of my teaching, my own DNA, I was intent upon helping students feel comfortable in the environment. And I was also able to be very empathetic to those who were having difficulties. But um, it's how I've spent most of my professional career. And so how did you go from administrator and teacher to Emmy award-winning TV host? Like tell, tell us how the origin of you and Project Runway. So the Project Runway producers were looking for a consultant and people said, enough people said to them, well, you should talk to Tim Gunn because he's made these great changes in the fashion department. Some people thought they were great. I thought they were great. So 
the producers who then were the magical elves, Jane Lipsitz and Dan Cutforth, called me and told me briefly what they wanted to do. And I'll tell you my response. I said, reality television? I said, this industry has enough trouble without that. <laughs> and they said, well, we just want 10 minutes of your time if we can just come in and talk to you. So I agreed, and then I Googled them, and I found out that they were the Project Greenlight producers. And I knew the show, and I thought, okay, this show has a lot of seriousness of purpose. It has a lot of integrity. Let's see where this takes us. So I was anticipating, given that it's reality television, that we would be picking people at random off the street and saying, you, we're going to make you into a fashion designer. But when Dan and Jane told me, no, 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 no. We want to work with young designers or people who have a path. And we want to present them with this competition. And there's a prize. And it will be really about designing. That will be the centerpiece of this show. So I was instantly placated. In fact, I grew enthusiastic. And I'll repeat, they were looking for a consultant, not, not for this person on the show. And we parted and I, my enthusiasm remained, but I didn't hear from them. Um, and I thought, oh, all right, they found someone else and fine and I'll move on. I mean, I had more than a full-time job, but then I did hear from them and they said, we would like you to be our consultant. And I don't, I mean, I, if, if we had four and a half hours, I'd regale you with what that experience was like because it was a roller coaster. Oh, and also I just want your listeners to know the show was never supposed to be a Parsons. Um, we were going to outfit a, a large loft space to serve as, as the design studio. And we realized we didn't have any money. We didn't have the budget. And I said, well, we're taping in August. Parsons is empty in August. The summer program's over and the fall semester hasn't begun. So come look at it. We'll, we'll look at, at the facilities and the equipment. And we did, and they liked it. And I got permission from the school to do this. In fact, Project Runway was paying Parsons to be there, of all things. Well, that's very smart, because like you were saying, you wanted to do something positive to get the school's name out there. Yeah. And then you're getting paid. And yeah. then at some point, I assume the conversation became, hey, we want you to be on the show. It Actually, Jen, it happened 24 hours before we were starting to, to tape. So oh, my gosh. I hadn't met Heidi yet. I hadn't met the designers. And I didn't think I needed to. I mean, I'm a consultant. I'm behind the scenes. So Jane and Dan said to me, you know, how would you feel about going into the design studio and asking the designers about what, what they're doing? And I said, well, it's how I've spent most of my life. Is there any truth to what we uncovered in the internet, which said you did not get paid for the first season? First two seasons. First two seasons? What? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm dumb and dutiful. I thought it's reality television. I already knew we had, didn't have enough. We had no money to outfit a, a, a loft space with equipment. And I thought, well, people don't get paid. And then I met the individual who became my agent. <laughs> he said to me, who represents you? And I said, who represents me for what? He said, well, your deals and, and your payments and your contracts. I said, I don't need representation. I mean, it's not as though I'm getting paid anything. He said, oh, we need to talk. <laughs> and he, he effectively changed my life. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I want to go back to something, though, because I'm fascinated by this idea that you were thrown in there to go and talk to the designers kind of as a 11th hour thing, because that 
is how every one of these reality shows that are in that kind of creative space has worked ever since. There are always people that go around and talk to the bakers or the crafters or whatever. And I don't know if, I, I can't remember if anybody did it before you did, but that's my first recollection of seeing that on a show. Well, I'm happy if that's if that's if that's the case, and if not, I'm just happy to be to be one of those individuals. I feel very lucky to have that role, but I have to say, having taught for so many years, making the adjustment to a mentor was bigger than I thought it would be. In fact, that same first day, I was sitting in the sewing room threading a bobbin for one of the designers who was having difficulty doing it, and Jane Lipsitz knocks on the sewing room door and she says, Tim. Can you come out in the hallway, please? Sure. What are you doing? She practically shouted. I said, I'm threading a bobbin. She said, if you thread the bobbin for that designer, you have to thread the bobbin for every designer for the duration of the show. And I said, I'm getting out. <laughs> I'm not about to, to do that. So I learned you really can't or shouldn't do things for them. And my goal and it's, it really has enhanced what I've been able to do as a teacher because I was still teaching at Parsons during the, the, those first few, few years. My goal became leading the project runway designer and then leading the student to a place where they could make these decisions and come to these realizations and have that kind of aha moment so that I didn't have to deliver it. And when, as you know, when we each individually have that aha moment and it comes from within, it's much more potent and powerful than when you hear it from someone else. Right. And it really, it really helped me grow. It sounds like your experience teaching and in academia in general really set you up well for what you ended up doing on Project Runway. Oh, it did, Doug. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. So there weren't a lot of these shows around then that sort of, you know, competition shows that focused on craftsmanship. Did, did you think when you started out and you weren't getting paid that this was going to run as long as it did? Oh, never in a million years. And I'll, I'll tell you a, an anecdote. At the time, the show was on Bravo and Lauren Zelaznik was the president of Bravo. And I didn't know who she was. I didn't know her name. I didn't know what she looked like. And she and I are standing together in the back of the Parsons Auditorium in the real and metaphorical dark, watching a Q&A between the judges and the designers. Lauren turned to me and she said, who's going to want to watch this? And I said, you're corroborating my worst fears. So I did not go to the premiere party for a very particular reason. One, I had never seen a cut of the show. So I thought maybe given Lauren Zelaznik's critique of this, this is all gonna be about sexual escapades in the apartments where the designers are living. And there'd be very little about actually making anything. Um, so that was one reason I had no idea what the show looked like. I also didn't know whether I was in it or not. And I thought all the designers are there, Heidi's there at, at the premiere. And if I'm not in it, it's gonna be kind of humiliating. And if I am in it, what am I gonna look like? And what am I gonna sound like and, and be like? So I watched the show in real time with everyone else or very few people watched it at the beginning. And I watched it under the covers of my bed the way I used to watch The Wizard of Oz as a kid. So I would kind of peek out, throw the covers over my head, peek out again. But you no, know, I and I'll repeat, I never dreamed we'd have a season two. And you know, the the show was almost pulled before it ran. I mean, before it ran um, all the episodes because no one was watching it. 
And I will say Bravo had a very powerful strategy. They decided to keep running the first three episodes over and over and over and over through the um, winter holidays. And my own mother said to me, why is it every time I turn on the television, your damned show is on? (laughs) (laughs) But it worked. So when they finally showed episode four, the the ratings had had grown by, I don't know, 400, 500%. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I liked about Project Runway, because I was not a huge reality TV person either at that time, but I liked exactly probably what they thought might be boring, which was watching people figure out how to, how to meet the challenge, how to create a piece, a, a dress or whatever it was, um, and what they all were going to look like. Like, I didn't yeah. really care about the interpersonal drama so much. It's just the act of creating under such time pressure. That, to me, was really exactly. fascinating. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. I feel the same way. But, of course, that's how I've spent most of my life, being part of that design process and, and, and observing it and, and being honored to be a participant in a small way. But I also thought I'm fairly unique. We didn't know the viewers would actually like it. And they do like it. And people do ask me, speaking of interpersonal relations, people do ask me whether we do things to um, inject drama into this. And my refrain is always the same. Absolutely not. Because when there's enough stress in that design studio without interpersonal drama, and when that is there, the designers don't do their best work. And we want them to create as high a level of work as they possibly can because that's great for the show. And if the work is really awful, that's bad for the show. So we we do all that we can to extinguish drama whenever it, it appears. Along with other shows like uh, Queer Eye and Housewives, Project Runway really helped turn Bravo into kind of a destination on the cable dial where it hadn't been previously. Well, thank you. Yeah, is that something you and like, you know, your colleagues on the show and around the network could sort of feel and was palpable to you? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you weren't getting paid, so maybe that was it, Tim. But... Um, well, and, and, you know, I, I, I had a full-time job that, well, it didn't pay me well, but the, the money aspect was never on my mind as being, gee, I'm doing all this and I'm not getting paid. I at least was always very matter of fact. I mean, I wasn't a a network executive, so I wasn't concerned with, oh, revenue and and ad sales and viewership. It was just, well, we're making the show and we need to be serious about how how we do this. Um, And I'll also add that a refrain from every new crew member was the following. I can't believe how unproduced the show is because we just lob out a challenge and step back and let the designers do what they do and we don't interfere with it. So no, we, we, we really didn't know, but you know, I have to say, and I, I'm somewhat reluctant to go into this, but I think it's, it's probably important The show was originally owned by Miramax, which Walt Disney bought, and then it became the Weinstein Company, and we all know what happened to that. Right. And Weinstein and and NBC had a bit of a difficult relationship, is what I'll say. And the Weinstein Company contract with Bravo was up after five seasons. And Harvey was intent upon giving NBC Universal Bravo the finger. And he did. 
he sold the show, as we know, to Lifetime. He never gave NBC Universal the opportunity to match whatever the, the amount was. Um, and basically it was a big F you. Uh, so that happened before we taped season five with Bravo. So there was a great deal of tension around that, including between Bravo and me, because I was told that I may not leave the show oh. or that I may not leave Bravo, that Project Runaway can go on somewhere else, but you can't leave. And I said, but my contract isn't with Bravo or NBC Universal. It's, it's with the Weinstein Company. Anyway, you can fill in all the... Uh, Sounds like awkward days. Very, very awkward. Right. Um, but you went on to Lifetime. The show continued to yeah. obviously succeed. And, and then ultimately, both you and Heidi decided to leave, right? We did. And ironically, it was at a juncture where the show was going back to Bravo. Bravo bought the show from the bankruptcy court, basically, after the fall of the Weinstein Company. And Heidi and I found out about it. I from my niece, Heidi from one of her sons, both via text saying, we just heard blah, blah, what's going on? What? I, I, I texted back my, my niece back and I said, this is crazy, this isn't happening because this was on a Monday morning and I can't remember what year exactly, but the Friday before I had been in Long Island City looking at the set that was being built for season 17 of the show. So we were all set to go and we were going to begin taping in three weeks. And then suddenly this happened. So Heidi calls me to ask when I found out about this. And I and my story was just like hers. Well, I found out about it from a third party. My agent was completely and totally dumbfounded by all of it. We had been talking about an amended show, a, 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 a reluctant to say higher level, a more expansive show um, mm -hmm. than Project Runway. Because as seminal as, as I believe Runway was in 2004 when it first aired, it stayed the same. And the fashion industry doesn't stay the same. It evolves. And in terms of, of how Heidi and I were looking at it, it had evolved to a place where it's not about a pretty dress anymore. It's about a brand. It's about a brand and all of its connective tissue. And, and it's about marketing. And it's about visual merchandising. And it's about public relations. So we had a vision for a much, as I said, more expansive show. And no one would listen to us. I mean, the, the runway people wouldn't, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we saw this as an opportunity to move forward with our own vision and, and see whether anyone was interested. And Heidi had, a, and still has, a lot of connections at Netflix. And we had a fantastic Netflix meeting. Our only disappointment was that Netflix tends to not want to do more than eight episodes of anything. And we thought, oh, how, how much can we really do in eight episodes? But at the same time, we were eager and enthusiastic. Then our agents, and Heidi and I, have, our agents are across the hall from each other. I love this term. Our agents got a call from Amazon saying, we hear Heidi and Tim are on the market. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel like, I'm in, in the, in a, at a meat counter. And they said, we'd like to have a conversation. Who's going to say no to Amazon? Um, we had a fantastic meeting and left feeling 
bubbly and enthusiastic. In fact, we couldn't stop cheering in the parking lot. And then we had a second meeting. And I have to say, this is right after Jennifer Salke arrived at Amazon Studios from NBC. And she is, and her team, I mean, everybody, they're fantastic. I mean, this was, I'm not knocking Bravo or Lifetime, but this was, this was a level of interaction and professionalism and collaboration as opposed to top down that I wasn't used to. And I loved the way it felt. And it wasn't until the third meeting when we were really going to move forward with the show that anyone talked about having Amazon fashion as a kind of partner in this and actually making the clothes so that they would be available immediately when you're watching it. It was one of those, why did it take us so long to think about it? But also, will Amazon fashion even be interested in doing this? Because it's daunting. So it's all happened. I mean, it's really like a dream. That's awesome. It, it is. And do you play, do you and Heidi play a different role on this show in terms of overseeing it versus where you were on Project Runway? Oh, very much so. I mean, as executive producers, we both had a, well, initially had a huge amount of creative input and also continue to. And I will say also our showrunner from Project Runway, an incredible individual named Sarah Ray, she was with us for 10 years. And we said to Amazon, there's only one person we know of who can actually do this with us because Sarah also shared this more expansive vision. And we said, Sarah Ray, you've got to meet with her. And they did, and they loved her and we're still together, the three of us. Given the challenging circumstances, it's so fortunate that A, you and Heidi had developed the relationship that you have and that you were on the same page trying to do something different as a unit because I can imagine a scenario where they were would maybe like one person wants to do something else or they try to pit one of you against the other. And, oh, you're you know, right. Yeah. Absolutely, Jen. You've gone very differently. Yeah, behind the scenes with this transition back to Bravo, there was a lot of, there were many attempts to pit us against each other. And Heidi had a great idea. She was going to be in New York. Um, she lives in Los Angeles. She was going to be in New York. And she said, let's have lunch in a public setting. And in this case, outdoors. And she called the paparazzi. So <laughs> we were all over the gossip pages, the two of us hugging, kissing, eating, um, to send a message to everyone that we are a united front. And we also made a pinky pact with each other that, that first week of discussions after the show was transitioning and, and said, we are, we're, we're, we're together in all this. It's, it's, it's one for all, all for one. So whatever happens, it'll happen to both of us, even if that means unemployment. <laughs> Did you and Heidi connect immediately going back to the earliest days of Project oh. One Way? And what's the secret of that chemistry? You know, Doug, I don't know how, what Heidi would say. I, well, and I still feel this way to a degree. That first season with her, I was always, I was back in my classroom that first week of school with the shaking knees and, and a dry throat. I'm in the presence of Heidi Klum. And I have to say, I don't know whether either you or Jenna have met her. I bought Girl Scout cookies from her once out here in LA and her daughter. Oh, you did? Oh, that's great. Are you in LA? I'm in LA, yeah. Oh, good heavens. Um, she is spectacular on camera. I mean, she just is, but she's even more spectacular in person. I mean, she just is, she's breathtaking. So no, I was a wreck. Um, and by <laughs> season two, I started to relax a bit. Um, and 
season three, I mean, yeah, we've, we've just grown very close and we really are, well, I'll say fashion's oddest couple and probably entertainment's oddest couple. I don't think you Although I don't odd. think your fans, yeah, I don't think your fans see it like that. You seem, you know, you seem like two peas in a pod somehow. Oh, well, we are. I mean, we really do love each other and, and have great respect for each other um, and enjoy each other's company. But when you look at us, we're a pretty odd couple. <laughs> <laughs> she calls me her television husband. She says it's the longest relationship I've ever had. <laughs> Standing next to Heidi Klum for a living has got to, got to be tough on anybody. <laughs> So we we haven't talked yet about uh, your catchphrase, make it work. Oh, yes. Um, did that just come out of your mouth and then it became a thing? Or how did that happen? So it was year five or six. And it happened because I was teaching a year-long course. And it was project-based. And the final project uh, was the summation of probably the last 20 weeks of a 30-week semester. So it was a big deal. So we were at about, we were about five weeks out of presenting the final project. And I had a student say to me, I'm starting all over. I'm going out, I'm getting new materials. I don't like what I'm doing anymore. And it's not working for me. And I'm gonna start all over. And I said, well, you're not. I said, I forbid it. You are going to sit with this work and offer up a diagnosis for what's wrong. And then you and I can discuss that. And then you're going to come up with a prescription, and I can help you if, if need be, but I prefer that you do this on your own, you're gonna have to come up with a prescription for how to make it work. I said, if I let you walk away from this at this point, then okay, then you get new materials, you start all over again from scratch, and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But I said, if you can solve this problem that's presented itself to you and work it out, make it work, then you have a whole new set of resources within you for future problems that you're going to need to solve because life's full of them, whether it's with your design work or whether it's with your finances or your home or whatever it may be, your relationships, you need to learn how to make it work. So I've been saying it for years and years and years. Were you surprised when it became like a catchphrase? Shocked. <laughs> Actually, I, I wasn't even aware that I was saying it. I just, I say it with such frequency. We have one question we wrap up with. I'm going to ask you one that we don't ask every guest, which is, do you own a pair of sweatpants? <laughs> no, I you do. don't. Oh, and you do. I, no, I do. And I'll tell you why. In 19 or in 1962, wishful thinking, when I turned 62, six years ago, I took up fencing because I met this charismatic Olympic fencer, Tim Morehouse. And I still say it, Tim Morehouse is the only person who's been successful getting me into a pair of sweatpants. <laughs> well, there you go. Our, our final question, which we do ask everybody is, excluding your own shows, do you have a favorite basic cable television show? I do. Um, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> We'd love to hear it. It's a show on HGTV, and it's called Love It or List It. Oh, okay. And I like it so much because I love the hosts. I find them to be compelling and charismatic, and I like the work that they do. And I just, I, I feel like I'm in their company, and I enjoy it. It's very soothing and cathartic for me. Is that a home reno show? or? A... Well, yes. It, it's about homeowners who have a house that they want, want one of, of the, the couple wants to leave, one wants to stay and renovate. Um, 
Hillary Farr, who is the renovation expert, um, is intent upon getting them to stay. David Vicenton, who's the real estate agent, is intent upon getting them to leave. So you see the, the evolution of this renovation, plus you see the homes that are being presented to these homeowners as another option. And then you're on pins and needles about, are they going to love it or are they going to list it? Excellent. <laughs> I, I also would have accepted Schitt's Creek, which uh, was on Pop TV, which I understand you're a big fan of. I'm a huge fan, but the fact that it's no longer airing is why I didn't mention it. Fair enough. I will confess, I watch an episode every night because it's also purging and cathartic for me. Mm-hmm. And it's not on cable, it's streaming, but I'm nuts about only murders. In the oh building. yeah, what a great show that is. It is. And they're they're making a season two. You should get on that show, like be a guest star. <laughs> I was gonna say, you're you're the consummate New Yorker yourself these days. <laughs> that the, the Bell Nord, the building in which the, the, the show is shot is four blocks from me. You're an Upper West Sider? Yeah. Just wander over there, Tim. <laughs> I may. <laughs> Tim, thanks so much for being here. You are as delightful um, as we see you on television all the time. And uh, we really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Uh, Doug and Jen, thank you so much. It's really been an honor to be with you and a great deal of fun. Well, wow, Tim Gunn, what a great guest he was, right? Yeah, he came to play. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. I still can't get over the fact that They weren't always planning to have Tim Gunn go around and talk to all the designers while they were working on their fashion, because that to me was such a huge part of the show. And thank God they realized that they needed to do that, because otherwise I I think it would have lost some of its charm. You know, I think in having made a little television in my time, I think that's one of those things you stumble upon. You know, he talked about, you know, he wasn't even sure he was going to get cut into the show initially and that he thought they were really just looking for his behind the scenes expertise. As it turned out, they had a TV star in the making and I think they all sort of stumbled into it and it really worked out pretty well for everybody. Right. That part of the show, I I don't know if other shows had done that before, but I feel like it was a new thing to, to really walk through the process with people. And it's so central to like every competition show like that that has come on ever since. So that's amazing to me. But then also, as you said, Tim wasn't really planning to be on television and he's such a natural at it. The idea that he was ever concerned or anxious is, is just kind of funny to me in retrospect because he's, he's quite good. Yeah, well, he was standing up in front of classrooms for a long time. And that's, I think, honestly, probably pretty good training. He was really cut out for it. He's got a great personality. He's got a real point of view, which we heard come through today. And he's a breakthrough TV star, along with his partner, Heidi Klum, who we talked about. Yeah, and obviously that partnership was really crucial when things got a little dicey on Project One Way and they decided to move on together. If they hadn't had such a good bond and the friendship that they've apparently developed, it wouldn't have been as easy for them to go on and and do their own thing. Yeah, that doesn't happen all the time on the set of a TV show or a movie where when the stars sort of sense something is awry, they they will lock arms and and put up a defense against, you know, producers or studios or whoever it is or networks to make sure that they get things done the way they think it should be done. And so hats off to the two of them for having a great relationship and sticking together and now moving on to another great show. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, by osmosis, you and I earned some fashion cred. Maybe we can up our game a little bit now that we've talked to Tim extensively. You mean as we sit here in our sweatpants and our sweatshirts? <laughs> I'm wearing a t-shirt, thank you. We got a long way to go. Although I did spend a minute or two thinking, I'm going to talk to Tim Gunn today. What am I going to wear? <laughs> exactly. You got to come dressed. Yeah, he's going to see me. So uh, <laughs> unfortunately, you guys can't, but uh, we're glad you listened in today. And we hope uh, you join us next time on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM. 
Hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow the show so you you never never miss an episode. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.